I'm Capriya Johnson, and you are listening to The Leadership Podcast, where we delve into the stories, strategies, and insights of experienced leaders who have successfully navigated the challenges and triumphs of their journey. Get ready to be inspired, equipped, and empowered to lead with confidence and purpose. Dr. Carlos Zadnick became the Ohio State uh, College of Optometry's Dean in 2014 and the Executive Dean for the Health Science Colleges in 2015. That means she's the Dean of Deans. (laughs) She received her academic degrees from the University of Cal Berkeley School of Optometry. And prior to coming to Ohio State in 1996, she was a faculty member at the University of California, Davis in the Department of Ophthalmology. Her professional highlights includes that she was a member of the National Advisory Eye Council of the National Eye Institute of the National Institutes of Health. She was a study chair for the NEI-founded Collaborative Longitudinal Evaluation of Ethnicity and Refractive Air, also known as the CLEAR study. And she was the chair of the first ever NEI-funded multi-center study based in optometry, the Collaborative Longitudinal Evaluation of Keratoconus, the CLEC study. Her career-long NIH funding totals, wait for it, $40 million. Very, very impressive. At Ohio State, she has chaired our IRB, our Biomedical Sciences Institutional Review Board, for 17 years. That's, that may be the most impressive of all. Yeah. And she received the university's Distinguished Scholar Award in 2010. So please help me to welcome Dr. Carlos Adams. And I'm going to ask her first to tell me her leadership journey. How did you get to be the Dean of Deans and in the the leadership roles that you've got? I was educated at the University of California, Berkeley School of Optometry, as Mike mentioned. And I went to work at the UC Davis Department of Ophthalmology. I was 24 years old. I'm, I'm an optometrist going to work in a college of medicine, school of medicine, And I, for a while, saw patients. I was a clinician. That's what I was going to do. And then I I got a leadership opportunity for a local optometric society, like a local medical society or a small club or group in your community. And I kind of liked it. And I thought, I might have some leadership chops here. And what I discovered was as an optometrist in a school of medicine, there was a, a ceiling that was hitting me. I was, I was up against it already. I was never going to be a department chair. I was never going to be the dean of a school of medicine. And so I decided to go back to graduate school. I thought a PhD would open all the doors. I briefly considered medical school and rejected it. Um, but I decided that a PhD in my own field would open doors that I knew existed and maybe open some doors that I didn't even know were doors. So I went back to graduate school and I was going to, uh, let's see, I was going to continue my career at the University of California, Berkeley, do my research and retire from there. Well, the University of California, Berkeley had different ideas for me and long story short, in one of the most devastating academic experiences of my life, I hope anyway, uh, they did not want to give me a faculty position. Dean wanted to hire me. Um, It was a big battle over clinical versus basic science research. I had both those NIH grants at the time, and they did not want to hire me. So I came to Ohio State. Ohio State recruited me. But the pivotal moment when you asked me how I became dean, 
So I came here and there was an executive committee for the college. Some of you may have that kind of thing in your, in your college or in your, your department. And it was all men who had been educated at Ohio State. And I happened to chair the college's research committee. And one of the people on that project was one of my collaborators. And he says, Carla, we need you to join the executive committee as chair of the research committee. And I said, okay, okay, tell me more. And he said, but you're not going to get a promotion. You're not going to get any associate or assistant decanal title and no money for doing it. <laughs> that had happened today. I probably would have gotten feisty and said no. And instead I said, okay, I'll do it. I think that's the right thing to do for the college. I think the college needs a different point of view. And it was the, at the same time, maybe the most denigrating and the smartest thing I could have done at the time, because then I was at the table and I was able to express my ideas and able to express my ideas in a constructive way, right? Not just a way where I was telling everybody what I thought they were doing wrong, but telling them how I thought we could do better, what ideas I thought we could, could incorporate that would improve the college. And after that, I became the associate dean for research and graduate studies. Then the associate dean for academic affairs retired. And ours is a small program. And I went to the dean and said, you know, I don't know very much about running the, the professional program. Uh, could I become the associate dean for academic affairs? He goes, well, yeah, if you'll stay the associate dean for research and graduate studies. Um, okay. And I learned a lot during that time. And honestly, I was hired by in the Gordon Gee era, no search, a phone call. You're going to be the dean when the current dean retires. Um, and so that's what happened. And I knew for 18 months that I was going to be the dean, but nobody else knew. And I became the dean in 2014. And I'm in my ninth year in that capacity. There's a big value on authenticity right now. You ever had anybody tell you, be authentic, you should be authentic? You know, you can't be authentic. That's not a thing you can be. I heard Mark say, you have to be you. You're not going to be him. You're not going to be me. You have to be you. That's what being authentic is. So when somebody just says, you just need to be more authentic, and you might walk away and go, what does that even mean? And you would be right in asking that question. So if somebody has a presence and you want people, you, you get people to listen to you, you do it by being your authentic self, not somebody else's version of what they think means authenticity to, for you. So obviously, um, you know, um, when I listen to you, the first thing that struck me is as a woman, how you were sidelined. It still happens to this day. And what would you advise? Because you know, we talk about diversity, racism, like, you know, there's been so much talk, but sometimes I feel it's all talk. There's no action. And how can, how do you, how, how would you advise people? So I think you have to find those actions in the arenas that are important to you. And one piece of advice, I have two adult daughters, um, 37, 32, they work for Netflix and cover my meds respectively, not a scientific or mathematic bone in their bodies, much to my deep regret, they're humanities arts girls. And they sometimes in their professions, they almost don't experience it. They don't realize it exists, but I think it does in academia. And I think you have to pick your causes. So I wanna give you a specific example of something I'm doing currently that's completely voluntary, 
I started talking to a colleague at the University of Alabama Birmingham School of Optometry. She was the chief diversity officer there. And she said, this was right after George Floyd was murdered. And she says, Carla, there's a group of us who need mentoring. And she met a group of black women faculty who are at schools and colleges of optometry across the country. Fast forward to today, it's a group of about 18 women. We meet once a month for a 90 minute Zoom call. We own, they call them black girl magic and a ginge is the name of the group. They christened it, not me. And we are, we discipline ourselves to only talk about their careers or their work-life balance concerns. We don't talk about DEI stuff during that hour and a half because that's their day job. They all do it all day, every day. But here's what they tell me. I've been doing this work and then an associate dean role or a department chair role opens up. And I'm the DEI person. So nobody calls me and asks me if I'd like to throw my hat in the ring to be the department chair or the associate dean. And I'm proud to say that the woman who helped me found it is now the first black woman dean at a school of optometry in the U.S. at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And it was by them being selfish enough, I think, her being selfish enough to spend some time concentrating on her own ambitions and goals. And along the way, this is my other piece of advice. You have to be excellent, which I think overrules everything else. That So if you're excellent, who can argue with that? Even if you are sometimes not given the title, not given the salary, but you're doing the work. Um, I'll tell you the executive dean role is, is, is dry promotion is what the dean of engineering told me. I said, what does that mean, David? He says, no money. It's like, okay, good to know. But I've done that work anyway because it matters and because it's a place I can make a difference. Find your, also, find yourself. I could, there were none many moons ago. I'm an old lady. There were none many years ago when, when I was looking. Find yourself a strong woman mentor in your discipline, outside your discipline, because I think having somebody to talk to who's been there or who's thought about it can really help. Zadnick.4 at osu.edu if you're looking for a new dinner partner. <laughs> so the power of your words as you move up in leadership roles, don't underestimate them. Choose them carefully. You almost, you almost can't think out loud anymore. And I hate it. And I still make the mistake all the time. The other thing my faculty members who are here might tell me is, faculty have told me this before, I do my really best to listen to somebody's articulation of a problem that, that they're working through or that they wanted to talk to me about, but I'm not very good at telling when they're just there to vent and when they actually want to do something about it. And I sometimes jump to create suggesting solutions when they really just wanted to vent. And so sometimes I think I should put a sign on my door that says, if you're just here to vent, tell me, because I'm happy to do that. If you could give a group of young aspiring leaders, one piece of advice that you say you wish you'd have gotten when you were at that, what would that be? Can I do two? Sure. Okay. So I mentioned, I alluded to the, to one, I took a leadership course many, many years ago and John Cotter's A Force for Change. It's an old book, but I really like it. And it talked about a key leadership skill being the ability to motivate and inspire others. On my cynical days, 
you know what that is? That's just getting other people to do your stuff. It's great. But when I think about it in a loftier way, when I think about it in the way of leading my college or leading this academy group, it's about people not feeling like you've manipulated them into doing the things you need or want them to do. But in fact, they are motivated and inspired, whether that's by your authenticity, by your ability to communicate by your energy. People often use the word energy to describe me, which my husband thinks is funny. He says, yeah, if they could see you at home at 1030 at night, they wouldn't think you're quite so energetic asleep on the couch before you, I have to wake you to go to bed. But if they admire those things in you, then inspiring them to follow the path or do the things that you think need to be done to get your group or your unit to the next level comes naturally and people aren't doing it begrudgingly. I, I heard a piece today, or it was, there was going to be a piece on Ann Fisher um, um, hmm, on NPR, and she was going to talk about this quiet quitting movement. My guess is you're not the quiet quitters because the quiet quitters aren't giving up a Thursday evening mm-hmm. uh, to learn more about leadership and to be better at their work and jobs and their futures. But apparently there's a significant part of the workforce that's doing that. When I think about that, part of the antidote to that might be if people work for leaders that motivate and inspire them, then they're motivated and inspired to not behave in that way. And we're all recovering from the pandemic, but that's a key, the ability to motivate and inspire others with your words, with your actions, with your own work ethic, with your own dedication to your work-life balance are all aspects I think that work. The second is seek people's advice, talk to people, get people's opinions, but not too much. Because at some point in a leadership role, you have to keep your own counsel and make a decision. Um, If you've ever worked for a leader who had a hard time making a decision, I have. Um, It's very frustrating. It's really frustrating. And so don't duplicate that instead. But I get advice. People have input. Now, does that mean occasionally somebody says, well, I told you what I thought should happen and it's not what you decided to do. Yeah, that's why I'm the dean. What do you want want me to tell you? Um, because, Because you eventually have to take all that counsel, all that advice. You're not taking a vote for most things. And you ultimately have to make the decision, live by it and motivate and inspire others. To, to follow through on that decision with you. Those are probably my two biggest. One question I have is, do you have any successful strategies you employ in difficult conversations in your position? You probably have had to have some or many difficult conversations, any strategies that you can think of? So I'll bet you're, you can anticipate what I'm going to say. I don't sugarcoat stuff much. If I have something feedback I have to give somebody, I sort of cut to the chase. I wouldn't spend a lot of time asking about dogs and kids. And however, there is um, a book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor that I um, ascribe to if you've ever read that. And she talks about being able to give people feedback, straightforward, meaningful feedback, but you have to really care about the person's success to do so. Okay, so another, it's a two, it's a two by two table and there's another square in it that is the square where you care deeply. Oh my gosh, you care so much about your employees or your work coworkers. You can barely deal with it, 
but you're horrible at giving honest feedback. You just can't, your mouth just can't make the words. That's called ruinous empathy in her model. You care, 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 but you can't tell anybody how to do things right, how to set a different course. So this radical candor idea, you can provide feedback. You can have those difficult conversations if you've built up the trust relationship and the person knows that you, the leader, deeply care about their success at whatever the thing you're talking to them about is. I can't remember what it's called. If you neither care, nor can you give feedback. <laughs> Worst boss of the century, perhaps, or I'm not sure. I can't remember what that square is called, but that radical candor idea, I think helps me. But I, don't, I will also say, I don't sugarcoat it very much. So the candor part, I probably de developed the caring side of that equation a little more along the years. Hi, thank you. I'm, I think following on to what you just talked about, I had the question and you just confirmed that you um, previously had more candor than caring. Sometimes as a woman, if you are very direct in your speech and language, people have a hard time accepting that from a woman. Have you ever had instances either maybe previously in your career where you spoke a little too forwardly for some people and, and how did you handle that or manage their reaction to that in a way that didn't minimize what you were saying, but also acknowledge the, the gap that might be there in expectations? You've said it much better. You've asked the question better than I can answer it. Yeah. Aggressive. Do you think people <laughs> probably used the word aggressive when I was a little bit younger with me? Probably when I was leaving Berkeley, one of the things that happened is one of the, the male faculty members, male professors said, you know, if Carla would, and I had these two NIH grants that I mentioned that they said, you know, if Carla would just be like the second banana for one of us for a while on a project, then maybe in a few years, we could, we'd put her on the faculty when we knew that she would be able to work with us. It's like, see ya. Ohio State's knocking on the door. I, I was sick of the commute. Who was sick of the five-hour commute? I was tired of the traffic. I was tired of the bad public schools. Um, and so I made that decision. So I, haven't, I have to admit, I've not been terribly good at backpedaling. I never worked to create a different persona because it's, it's just not me. So it's gotten me into some trouble. Um, my previous boss and I, the pre dean before me, he was a really soft-spoken, super nice man. We did okay, but we had very, very different styles. And I remember we asked him when he, we interviewed him if he'd ever fired anybody. And he said, no, but I'll make sure I have an associate dean who can. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that was going to be me at the time. It's like, okay, that's the role I'm supposed to fulfill for him. So I haven't been very good. I'm not, I'm not terribly good at apologies. I have to say, I, I'm a, a kind of a take me or leave me sort of person to a certain extent. And maybe that served me well. And maybe somebody would say, yeah, there could be other jobs on the executive Dean topic. I was not going to throw my hat in that ring. And I had this fantastic life coach. Her name was Ellen Rudy. God rest her soul. She was dean of the College of Nursing at Pittsburgh. I met her on a search committee and asked her if she would be willing to go to dinner with me every other month and I would pay for dinner. And she says, I'll pay for every, every other dinner and you don't have to listen to any of my advice. And the executive dean position opened up and she says, I've been a dean a year. She says, I think you ought to apply for that. Oh, Ellen, I'm not going to apply for that. I really think you ought to apply for that. And I did. And the provost thought I was the, the then provost thought I was the right person for the job.
when you're in, I would say lower, but earlier leadership roles, how do you ask the bigger leaders for things when you maybe don't have a lot of like, it's a leadership role, but it doesn't have like a money resources, whatever, or, or those might be limited or undefined. So whatever task I was taking on, whatever big responsibility I did have, I would map out what I had to do. If I did go to my fiscally conservative boss, soft-spoken, nice guy with a very different leadership style, I would like have some talking points in my hand so that I didn't get there and fumble. And I generally acknowledged that he needed what I used to call repeat readings of the legislative agenda before he would say yes to stuff. So I ratcheted back my own expectations that I was going to blow into his office and say, we need to hire somebody to teach yada yada. I've got the perfect person. I think the salary is going to be about this. This is what it's going to cost. He wouldn't have said yes to something like that in a million years. But if I started with a conversation about we're going to have this teaching gap next year about, about for this particular course. And I wonder if there would be somebody in the Department of Pharmacology that might be able to teach it for us. Leave it at that. The next time I come and say, remember that pharmacology course we talked about? Now I've got somebody that I think might be able to teach. And I discovered that by the third or fourth time I made the request, by then he was ready to make the decision. So I, there's, there is an example of me changing my style a little bit to get what I wanted. So that might be a way to do it. And all through it, though, I was still maintaining, you know, I was doing the job that he was paying me to do and that he expected me to do. But I just learned a different way of asking for things by virtue of his personality. The Leadership Podcast is produced by The Ohio State University's Office of Faculty Affairs. For more information, visit us at faculty.osu.edu. I'm your host, Capriya Johnson. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.